Good evening. This is Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio, and we're glad you're joining us. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on, been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you soon by calling us at 800-552-8502. Again, 1-800-552-8502. So we always start with a recap of last month's conservation tip. And last month we talked about rain barrels. We have two rain barrels. They're each 400 gallons. And we also use ours to refill a small pond we have that so many birds use to bathe and take drinks. I've set out game cameras at night. We've seen, we've gotten pictures of gray fox and deer coming and drinking out of the pond. So um, we use that, our rain barrels, to uh, refill the pond, especially in the hot summer when the sun evaporates so much of that pond that we need to refill it and we like that it doesn't have chlorine in it. So the two big challenges with a rain barrel are leaves and mosquitoes. Uh, leaves can include of course pine straw, acorns, anything that's coming off the trees and getting into your your gutters that then needs to be separating your your leaf litter from your your rainwater. So you want only water to get into your rain barrels. So Leaves are a biggie, and then you don't want mosquitoes getting in there. So I've got fine mesh wiring to keep the mosquitoes out. I also use those mosquito dunks. They look like, I don't know, like a hard mini donut, and it dissolves over time, and it's, it doesn't impact your plants or pond critters if you use that water that's got the dissolving mosquito dunk in it. So I clean our rain barrels about every other year. There's some sludge buildup in the bottom. You could do it once a year, but I found that about every other year is good enough. And the interesting uh, conversation piece with our rain barrels, because they're big, 400 gallons of big, tall dude. It's made of uh, shiny metal. They're really cool looking, but friends and neighbors have asked us how the water tastes suggesting we're using that water for our own use and it's not for human consumption. We're tapped into the local water supply, so we're good. Uh, we just like to get the water for our wildscape and our pond and uh, it's free water and it's good stuff. So consider getting a rain barrel, look online um, or go to your local hardware or feed store, see if you can find one and, and make sure you, you have in mind that two big challenges I mentioned leaves and mosquitoes so make sure you can tackle those otherwise you're gonna have a disaster on your hands but we've we've mastered those two things and we love it we love our rainwater that we harvest and uh, it's free every month we profile a species and this month we are profiling the cliff swallow and it's a bird that i think has a great first name <laughs> And it's a bird that really does fly our friendly skies. So let's listen here to the plaintive 
chirps of cliff swallows. It's a bunch of them calling. So cliff swallows breed throughout much of the U.S. and Canada, yet winter mostly in southern South America. Some individuals breed in Alaska while winter in Argentina, a distance of over 8,000 miles, making this species a long-distance traveler. Cliff swallows can live up to 10 or 11 years, so think of the frequent flyer miles they rack up, not including their daily foraging bouts once they reach the breeding grounds or the wintering grounds. By day, cliff swallows are aloft way more than they're perched. Seen mostly flying around, look for a squared off tail, not the fork tail like its close cousin, the barn swallow, which the two can occur alongside one another. Also look for the tan forehead and buffy rump of the cliff swallow. Another close cousin, the cave swallow, can look very similar to a cliff swallow, but the cave has a dark cinnamon forehead. On the breeding grounds, there's another way to tell apart the cliff swallow from the other two mud swallows mentioned earlier, and that's looking at the architecture of the mud nest. Cliff swallows build a gourd-shaped or jug-shaped nest with a tight entrance hole, while barns and caves build open cup nests. Swallows are aerial insectivores, meaning they catch and eat prey with their mouths while in flight. They're particularly fond of swarming insects such as bees, wasps, flies, damselflies, moths, grasshoppers, crickets, and more. Swallows are good neighbors to have as they help keep pesky insect numbers in check. To see a photo by James Childress of a cliff swallow sticking its head out of a freshly built mud nest, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. All right, tonight I'm super excited about our guest. She's calling in from far west Texas in the Davis Mountains of the Trans-Pecos of West Texas. And we have Madge Lindsay, who is a longtime friend of mine. And I'm very tickled to have her because we both worked together at Texas Parks and Wildlife. But the, the beauty is she she was there before me and she hired me. She was my first supervisor there that I went and interviewed and guess she liked what she saw and hired me and and, and then I got a full career out of it so I'm really appreciative to her. Um, Madge has she's retired from lots of different work she's going to tell us in a minute but she has her own consulting business called Madge Lindsay LLC for conservation and nature tourism and she's based in Fort Davis. Madge are you there? Yes I am Cliff. Great Madge well thanks for coming on uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulties a few minutes ago, but we can hear you loud and clear. And uh, so why don't you start us off with a, a, a basic bio sketch, things about yourself, where you grew up, you, you know, places you've lived and worked, and, 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 and tell us about your current work. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you and spend a few minutes telling us about Madge Lindsay. Well, thanks, Cliff. It's, it's indeed a pleasure to be with you on your radio show. Um, I grew up in North Alabama, near t the Tennessee state line, and it, I grew up on a cotton farm, and uh, thank goodness there were lots of creeks and woods all around our land where we lived. So nature and agriculture were a big part of my life because there were four of us children, and we also helped on the farm, 
therefore we were outdoors most all the time. And, and I attribute this to my uh, growing, continually growing love of nature and birds and other wildlife. Um, I went to school uh, at a small rural school in North Alabama, and uh, after I graduated, I did a couple of years at the University of Alabama in a business administration degree. And uh, I later w- had the opportunity, after two years, to work in Huntsville, Alabama, with the Boeing Company, and we helped develop uh, the first stage of the Saturn rocket program, which was terrifically exciting. Um, after I finished that job, I went back and uh, I started a family and was married. And then later I went back to the um, to Texas A&M to complete a degree in recreation parks and tourism sciences. Uh, of course, being a fan of nature, I really wanted to get into those real juicy courses about geology and biology and uh, all about plants and it was just a wonderful experience and oh by the way I was a member of the uh, the students above traditional age when I was there oh. <laughs> because this was later in life is, is that and, an official club yes there were <laughs> there's actually a group there named that, that oh met. that's funny yeah and then people were married couples were going back to it was really interesting and I think they still are I mean I just think it's very worthwhile to do after that I, I petitioned uh, a couple of friends at Parks and Wildlife to see if they had an interest in my uh, occupational uh, degree and uh, thank goodness I did get a job there in the wildlife division with the non-game uh, wildlife program and that's where I met Cliff uh, I worked at Texas Parks and Wildlife for about 12 years and then uh, after, and worked on projects uh, uh, like the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail and then the World Birding Center in the Rio Grande Valley and other projects uh, involving people in nature, just like Cliff has done with his radio show. And you all are listening, you're learning, and, and if you're interested in nature, it's just a great thing to do is to get on you know when the show comes on be there and listen but also it, it was um, uh, after that that after working uh, at Parks and Wildlife I went to work for the National Audubon Society in Mississippi as their state director and worked with some wonderful people and we had a fantastic um, I helped start a birding uh, festival that became so popular and it was like a three-and-a-half-day weekend festival, and we were close to Memphis, and we started getting all kinds of people coming to the festival. And the way we lured them there was to get a little little bitty piece in the newspaper that if they wanted to see a hummingbird up close, we were going to be banding hummingbirds, and they could come and watch. Mm-hmm. So as, uh, when I retired from there about... Oh, it must have been seven years later. Um, we had at least 5,000 people over the weekend to come and see hummingbirds and all the birds that we had at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, which is up in uh, North Mississippi. So that's a little bit about what I've done over my life. It has been very exciting, and I'm still doing that sort of thing, even though I'm retired. 
You, you mentioned the, the burning trail, which was the first ever that you and a few others spearheaded. You know, you did all, a lot of the legwork, most of the legwork, and now they're all over the country. Uh, you started that in the mid-90s. You also mentioned the World Burning Center, but did I miss the Burning Classic? Did you talk about that? Oh, well, I, I'm, I was hoping to get um, on onto the Burning Classic in a few minutes, but the thing is, um, the Burning Classic is also the one big project that all the birders, we all came together to do a statewide birding uh, competition. Yeah. And uh, we raised money from corporations, and each team uh, paid their money they raised toward a conservation project. And as a result of that, and the good people who have run this particular thing for years, one being uh, Shelley and then Cecilia, another person we worked with at Parks and Wildlife. But anyway, the uh, Classic has collected more than a million dollars that have gone out to habitat projects all around the state uh, to help the birds. And so to me, that was probably one of the most, the best project because it also involved very novice teams, mm-hmm. different classes of teams, like expert birders down to, you know, uh, young children learning to bird. So it's a really great event and one that I'm very, very proud of. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for all those things you've gotten going and and they're still going today. And so it must be, you, you have to be proud knowing that you started things, you know, it's kind of like a, like a bird egg, you know, you, you laid these eggs and they've hatched and now they're flying around, they're beautiful birds, and they're just doing well, so congrats. Thank you. It's, it's really, it is really, but it, I'm very humbled by it because we all got excited about it, uh, all of the people we, I worked with, and coming down to the mayors and the, uh, the county courts, I had to, you know, work with all kinds of different levels of government and also with uh, the public at large, and it was most rewarding. Yeah. yeah. You see, only in a bird show can I use that silly little pun about the egg and 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 growing up into a pretty bird. If it was a plant show, I'd use a seed and it grows into a nice, funny, you know, pretty tree or a plant. But that, you know, I, I like that we can do these these bird this bird humor on the show. How about that? Good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, Madge, you currently live in the Trans-Pecos region of Texas. You've created an oasis with your wildscape around your house. Uh, we've been out there, my family and I. You have all sorts of native plants and bird baths and feeders. Give us a short list of the birds that frequent your wildscape. Well, you know, to, yesterday I purposely sat outside and watched just to see what was coming because I knew I was going to do the show and we would be talking about birds. But I, I have the Woodhouse scrub jays in uh, great numbers. Uh, Outnumbering the Woodhouse scrub jays are the white-winged doves, which uh, cost me a fortune to feed along with the other birds. But I try not to discriminate because they just love what I've got, and they come and just eat everything up. Mm-hmm. In addition to the uh, doves, I have um, Paraloxia, Phenopepla, Cardinals. Uh, I have Nuthatches and uh, Titmice. Curve bill thresher. These are birds uh, that have these long curved bills, and they're beautiful. Uh, spotted towhees, uh, white crowned sparrows, and rufous crowned sparrows. 
have road runners. Um, mm. I've even had uh, an elf owl in one of my nest boxes. Oh, awesome. Know. Yeah. And I, and I do have, you know, a list of rare birds I've had here, um, um, one being the violet crown hummingbird, which was so exciting. And then uh, in the Christmas bird count last year, I had a uh, the first record of a golden-fronted woodpecker in my yard. Uh-huh. And they're all around us. I don't know why they've not seen them here very much. Yeah. But anyway, I did turn in a record on that. That was really exciting. Well, that's interesting. So you got to feel good having all these species around you. I mean, doesn't that give you a relaxing feeling when you're sitting out on your oh patio? Oh, gosh. It's, it's just so entertaining. Yeah. And, you know, you hear here's something you've never heard before. You get outside to see if you can see it with your binoculars. And, uh, you know, that's how I knew that I had the um, phenopepla because they have a distinct whistle. Uh-huh. And so learning the bird sounds uh, have been really uh, a good thing for me because it triggers me onto a new species or to a bird that I wouldn't normally have in my yard. Yeah, yeah. Our, our ears, even though it's called bird watching, we often use our ears a lot more to detect birds. So that's great that you're using your ears out in your own backyard to find new stuff. And that. Yeah. And you know what? I believe, and, and I'm, I'm sure your people who are listening who watch birds, they hear their calls, and if you're if you have a backyard garden, and I do uh, recommend that, and you can fix it where uh, you can see from your favorite chair in mm-hmm. your living room, you can uh, just see all kinds of things going on out there. But in the summer, I'm out most of the time, so I hear a lot and see a lot, and yeah. I have a porch where I can sit, so it's great. Yeah, that's great. Well, tonight um, we're focusing our discussion on bird watching as an industry, and we, we use these terms ecotourism and nature tourism and i'm curious uh if you could define those for us and tell us if they're synonymous and whether you have a preference well you know i i I, the way i look at it and i think it all depends on how you look at it but i see ecotourism as mostly specialized guided trips to different parts of the uh, u.s and the world to see the bird life in that region. You know, many people have a life list, and many people want to see every bird in the world, and many people actually achieve, almost achieve that goal. And so they travel everywhere to see birds. I call that ecotourism. Mm -hmm. And then I call, I think nature tourism is more local. I call it, you know, it's like going fishing, going bird watching, going out uh, with friends to see some phenomenal uh, natural place mm-hmm. and um, and also special events that are built up by the communities to bring people in to see their great resources. Mm-hmm. So nature tourism to me is more local where bird watchers travel on their own and uh, in their car to see the bird life they can find on their own and or with a get local guide. Okay. okay, okay, good answer. Uh, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackle for your host. We have Madge Lindsay as our special guest. She's phoning in from West Texas. And if you have a question about nature tourism or ecotourism for her, um, the number here is 800-552-8502. If you just have a general bird question, that's totally um, acceptable tonight as well. 
And uh, that number again is 800-552-8502. And until somebody calls, we have, I have more questions for you, Madge. A little bit more about you. What got you started in the field of birds and nature tourism? You, you mentioned growing up outside. Um, and so I, maybe that's your, your answer again, or, or did you want to maybe explain a little deeper um, about what got you started? Maybe, maybe which came first? Obviously, probably birds came first because right. we didn't talk about nature tourism when you were growing up. Right. That's exactly right. And it was the birds. And it was always in my yard or somewhere. In the, we had the cotton fields around our, our home, but past the cotton field would be a creek or an old cow pasture, and we would get out in nature and, and take our fishing poles and go fishing, and when we were sitting on the banks where there was some trees, we would uh, enjoy what we were looking at in addition to playing in the water. But um, I, I just think it's wonderful that I got to grow up in nature because it has fueled this great love of the birds. And then later, as I went back to college at Texas A&M, I had already taken a geology class at the community college uh, in Plano, Texas, and uh, I just started falling in love with everything I was learning and seeing. And uh, after I got to A&M, I found out that they had this program in parks, recreation, and tourism. And in my imagination, I thought, you know, birds. And I knew people who went to see birds, and, and it wasn't really called, like you say, called uh, ecotourism or nature tourism, mm-hmm. but I thought we've we've done nothing in Texas to invite those people to our state, mm-hmm. and our state has more birds than any state in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to do something about that. So then I really got involved in projects that were just so exciting, and we looked at other projects around the country, and there was nothing like this going on. But we did. Uh, start out with the Texas Herman Hummingbird Roundup, which we did find first in Georgia. They were getting the public to call in about their hummingbirds, what they were seeing, and if they had a rare hummingbird, we would go check it out because we didn't know what hummingbirds were coming to mm-hmm. our counties. And so it was very informative, and it was just great, and, and I enjoyed that very much. That's great. So you mentioned at your current house you've had some rarities like the Violet Crown Hummingbird which there's probably, I don't know, under 20 records probably for Texas. And when you had yours, it was probably one of the earlier ones. But I'm thinking about two decades ago, you had a really rare bird visit your yard when you lived in Westlaco. So, uh, and Westlaco's down in the southern, near the southern tip of Texas, down between McAllen and Harlingen and Brownsville, down in that part of the world, near the Mexico border, near the Rio Grande. So tell, tell us what rare species repeatedly visit your bird bath for a short spell and how did the bird watchers react well you know first of all i I was astounded by the number of birds there that were so different from any of the birds i'd seen in the southeastern u.s and uh one being the green jay which was all over the place and then the chastilacos which are cacking and calling Mm. all the time Mm -hmm. and uh it was just really fun to have all that plus we had red crowned parrots in our neighborhood cool uh, that were wild they were probably birds that had flown over or been let go from cages but they had proliferated there Mm -hmm. so that was really exciting but the one bird that came to my yard that stirred up so much attention because i had a really nice yard with good trees native trees and it had berries and flowers and 
just everything fruit you can imagine. And it was a small yard, but I had all kinds of birds come in. And one day I looked out my window, and there was this blue mockingbird. And uh, and I didn't know I didn't know at the time it was a blue mockingbird. It was a bird I'd never seen before. So I called my neighbor, who knew about these birds being over on the uh, on the other side of the border in Mexico. And he came over and he says, "You've got a blue mockingbird here." He said, "I don't think we've ever had one in the U.S." So anyway, uh, it was just really exciting. Well, that got on the birding hotline, and people came from everywhere, all over America. To put that bird on their life list. Isn't that fun? Yeah, and it was just amazing. And I then later got an award from the American Birding Association that uh, for me letting bird watchers come to my yard and look for that bird. That's and that's really I fun. That was, that, you know, I welcome people all the time to come look at birds. But anyway, I thought that was pretty nice. But it was really fun to have that bird. Plus. Um, you know, it it it, uh, it helped with all of the local birders getting to see it as well, and um, now they've seen probably oh I'm not sure how many, but they are not as rare as they used to be in the Rio Grande Valley. They've had I think several sightings since I've not lived there. Of blue blue mockingbird, still very rare. I think still probably under five records. So. Uh, your your bird your bird stuck around for a long time, so a lot of bird watchers got to see it. That's exactly right. So so they traveled from afar. How did they react when they saw it? Oh, well, they were all in love with it. People were videotaping it wow. and taking photographs. And you know, they might be twenty people standing at uh, at my fence, looking in my yard uh, every morning when I got up. That's fun. And they, uh, but they were really wanting to see the bird and. That, that same phenomena happened in Austin outside a lake where they had a blue-footed booby. Yeah. And that's a bird that many people didn't get to see, and they, they the people there had it for a while. So bird, rare birds and birds that are unusual and birds in uh, colonies and big groups like hawks and different things really draw attention, and that's why uh, habitat is so important. Water Water, 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 mm-hmm. like Tiff was saying, is so important. Nothing more important than water uh, that is constantly there because if the birds know it's constantly there, they're going to keep coming back. And then the birds who don't know it's constantly there will hear the birds that are there chipping and talking, and they will come in. So you're going to get rare things or things unusual coming into your yard that you might not see otherwise if you didn't have water. Yeah. Well, that's neat. You saw a rare bird, and you didn't have to prove it because hundreds of people came and saw it and photographed it, which is great, versus the people that see something rare, and they don't have their camera, and no one believes them. So that's really great. You got really lucky on that, that the bird stuck around and, and, and could be viewed by lots of observers. One more example of that was about four months ago. I was in my backyard, and like I say, I have lots of white-winged doves. So when doves are there, I don't pay that much attention. But one day I was sitting, uh, I wasn't sitting, I was filling bird feeders and and piddling in the garden, and I was about to walk in the house, and I looked over on a certain branch. I thought, that dove looks a little bit funny. And uh, sure enough, I went in this house, kept my eye on the bird, got my information out, got on the computer, and went to Cornell. And it was a ruddy ground dove. Mm. 
Now, I did not get a picture of it, but I called my friends to come over to hopefully they would get to see it and maybe they could get a picture mm-hmm. because my phone was dead and that was not good. But anyway, uh, I didn't get a photograph of it, but that's why it's important if you can photograph a bird at yeah. your finger and you think it's rare. It's always fun to check that out. That's right. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host. We have Madge Lindsay as our guest on the phone, and we're talking about nature tourism. And the phone number here, if you'd like to ask a question tonight, the phone number is 800-552-8502. We've got our first caller on. We have John from Fishville. John, are you there? I'm here at Fishville. I sure am. What do you got for us tonight, sir? I got one uh, for Miss Lindsay and then one for you, uh, First of all, Cliff, we've talked about the uh, cowbird a lot. And when they migrated north this year, uh, I've had as 60 at some nights. And then, but you know about their migrating uh, patterns. There, I haven't seen five as they're going south. Yeah, in, in, in our area, they, they can get kind of tough to find as winter gets settled in. So we're probably getting out of the migration time. And, and if you didn't see big numbers in October and up till now, it's probably going to get less until the spring, until the, the northbound migration. And, um, and I don't know what to tell you, John. It's just the, the beauty of birds. They're here today and sometimes gone tomorrow. You know, Mother Nature is kind of messing with them like Mother Nature is messing with us. So that's understandable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what do you have for Madge? Uh, okay, we got some crows, basic old black crows, all over the roads down here in, in this part of the country. And there's one, uh, several of my neighbors and family have seen one that's about 80% white and it's been there for six weeks or a couple months now and still there with the group. Um, why? How could you get a that kind of a mix out of wild birds? Yeah, you know, and, and that does happen. And I, I'm going to let Cliff, since my degree is more in the uh, getting people interested in birds, and his is in that too, but also he's a biologist. And it's, it's probably albinism or um, what the... Why don't you explain that? We we call that leucism. You know, in the old days, everything was, if it was white, we called it albinism, or if it was just had a few white feathers, it was partial albinism. But albinism is pretty unusual, very unusual, and it's usually an all or none thing with with the the soft parts, meaning the beak and the legs and the bare skin that's visible would be pinkish, and the eyes would be pink. And most of these birds aren't like that. So, John, I'm guessing your bird is a leucistic bird, and, and thank goodness his buddies are accepting him. Um, I, I've seen crows that have had white patches, and, and they're still in groups, and they're still accepted. They're not considered an outcast or an oddball. Um, but it just happens in nature. It's just a lack of pigmentation. Uh, actually, a dilution of pigmentation is what causes leucism, and, and it's obviously a healthy bird. It's uh, flying around with your flock that you mentioned and uh, is doing fine. Yeah. There's no chance of a, a crossbreeding 
event, though, is it? It's it's a it's an oddity with that individual. It's not uh, crossbreeding. Would be you know that something that's probably genetically. I mean, it's just it's it's probably a fluke of nature. So it's young are probably not going to have that same feature. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Cliff. We miss you. You ought to get two two programs a month instead of once a month. I know. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for the call, John. Appreciate it. Okay. We'll visit later, pal. Bye-bye. Th- thank you. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford here at Red River Radio. And we've got Madge Lindsay talking about bird watching and nature tourism. And I've got questions. And I want to I wanna talk about nature festivals, Madge. And I want to uh, have you talk about how they're popular and they've been around for decades, but can you tell us about a few nature festivals around the country that are worth visiting for anyone that wants to see if hosting a nature festival is right for them and their community? Uh, Yes. You know, probably just about any place in Texas that still has a lot of their native habitat or the uh, natural areas that have uh, been allowed to exist uh, along with development. Uh, well, all every community has uh, their own birds. They have a lot of the same birds as the next community, but they may be a little bit more ge- geographically north or south. That causes them to have a few birds that nobody else north of them has. And they also have phenomenal things that happen, you know, like when all the hawks fly over or all the... Uh, the migration uh, starts. And so um, the communities, and there are quite a few nature festivals in Texas and uh, already, and there was only one going on when I started working at Texas Parks and Wildlife, and it was down at Rockport, and it was the Hummingbird mm-hmm. uh, Festival that they had down there. And so we decided to use that as a model and to have a conference there and and invite people from around the U.S. to come to know that this thing is going on and it's something similar that they could do if they have a lot of hummingbirds. Well, in, in you, it's uh, the good thing about a birding festival, it could be a birding and nature festival because people who want to see birds also want to learn about nature. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. And they want to be in nature. Mm-hmm. So you're giving them what they really want is mm-hmm. birds. And birds they can see up close with binoculars or in somebody's hand where they're banding them. So it's really, um, you know, I just think that if you have uh, the resources and the way you find out your resources is to find the birders in your county and you can find that online through the aba and through cornell where people that list birds and put them online ebird ebird the the new thing that's that's come in that's helped because people now every morning they get up and they they check their birds and then they go on ebird and they can tell how long the birds are there you know if they do that every day and and so now they're getting a lot of records, and, and, and they're also finding that birds are declining. The thing about birding festivals that's so wonderful is it can be just about any birds that are beautiful, that people have not seen before. You can have a nature festival. At Strawberry Plains, where I worked, we had, a, we had the best expert on bats there, hmm. and people wanted to see bats. Okay. And so we had a whole tent set up where they there would be three bat shows a day, and they could go and see a live bat 
and learn about from this uh, biologist who's quite famous what bats do and how they make their living and get to see them and and it's just really fun to learn all of that mm-hmm. so uh you know any town that has nature and creeks and maybe a river run running through it probably has good bird life and uh you know, what I'm reminded of is right there in Louisiana, I've made acquaintance with the people that run wild birds and rice or rice and rail, uh, yellow rail. And that festival is mainly uh, going there and riding on a combine to see yellow rails. Right. And the people who have never seen a yellow rail, they're hard to find. They will come and be at that festival so they can see that bird, get to know it and learn about it and put it on their life. Yeah, yeah. good example. Yeah, birding festivals are great, and they're fun. And, uh, you know, we also had hot dogs and an ice cream machine, Mm -hmm. and people didn't get hungry. And we didn't take people on field trips, but a lot of the festivals do, and that's wonderful. And we do on our festival here in Fort Davis. But they stayed there, and they went from tent to tent. We had bats and snakes, and we always had professional biologists that, knew how to handle these creatures where everybody was safe and they were safe and so it was just an amazing thing for people to do especially if they wanted if the children loved nature you know uh, we had a a gentleman there who talked about the most important trees to plant if you want to host birds in your yard or warblers because Mm -hmm. they eat little tiny worms and which which trees can survive the little insect that lives on that tree that the birds are going to eat. So there's just a lot, a lot to discover if you have a birding festival that's been thought out by by the community and in good um, trip leaders and also good hosts, people who know nature, love nature, and know about it. It's just really rewarding for the people that attend. The word ecotourism, they're bringing in tourism dollars. They're, they're filling up the, the hotels. They're eating at the restaurants. They're shopping. So... Right. So the city leader is, is, yeah. is like ecotourism that because it impacts the economy. Yeah, and, and so city, uh, city leaders ought to look at that as a, a source of revenue for their area. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So we have we have another call. We've got Charles from Shreveport. Charles, are you still with us? Yes, I'm here. Okay, go ahead. I noticed it hasn't been recent, but it was several years ago. I live in Southwest Shreveport down there by uh, LSUS. And I heard a racket went outside, and it was a roadrunner. Oh. I've never seen a roadrunner in here in Louisiana. I've mm-hmm. seen them in Texas and Oklahoma. Is that unusual? They, they've slowly marched eastward as we've opened up the forest and, and made it more open for them. Um, so, you know, 150 years ago, there were no roadrunners over here. Uh, but we've clear, made clearings, and they've been able to hopscotch over here, and, and, uh, and they're here in small numbers, and uh, uh, always a treat to see one. And I, I see probably four or five in East Texas, which is Piney Woods-like here in Shreveport, and, and I'm always excited when I see one because I have lived in Central Texas um, where they're, they're all over the place, and I, I didn't take them for granted there but I sure sure enjoy seeing them here. So that's a treat, Charles. That's a that's a good bird to see. Uh, but it it's was, it's something your great great grandfather would not have seen in Shreveport. Oh, well, it was really neat because I I saw it and it was 
in my neighbor's yard, front yard, and I got my kids and brought them out and showed it. And then it flew up and ran across the neighbor's roof, hopped over to the next roof, and ran down and oh, then neat. back to another yard and down the street. Oh, neat. Well, we've got Madge on the phone, and she mentioned having roadrunners on her uh, patio. Madge, what kind of stories do you have? Are they, they, they peck at your glass window seeing their reflection or anything weird? Well, uh, they really get upset um, if I happen to be out and my little kitty is out. Oh. <laughs> they squawk and carry on, but they're really good because I have, uh, I have a lot of food for them. I have lots of little herps, different kinds of lizards and things like that, and big bugs. And yeah. so they're here to, you know, they come into my yard knowing that they're going to find food somewhere. Yeah. And they're wonderful, and and uh, I, I think there's a J. Frank Doby. Somebody wrote a book about roadrunners that's really good. You might look up roadrunner books online, but there's some good books about them to read about them because they are real characters and they do crazy things. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah. Yeah. The other one other last question. Okay. Is, is the I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the word right. The blackbird is called grackle. Uh huh. That's correct. I remember seeing those in Central Texas or whatever, and in the last few years, I'm seeing them here in Shreveport in all the parking lots, and mm-hmm. they make a horrendous amount of noise. So I guess they're migrating over too. They're they're moving eastward, northward. Yeah, they are really expanding, and and we're talking about the great-tailed grackle because we have three species of grackles that are native to the U.S., and all three occur in in Louisiana and Texas and beyond, but. The great-tailed grackle, you can see with publications, they marched north out of South Texas, originated in, in Central America, and marched in, in the 40s up into Texas, and they didn't get to, like, the metroplex of Dallas-Fort Worth until the 50s. And with urbanization, great-tailed grackles have moved, increased. I'd, I'd like to add something to that clip. Okay. Uh, Victor Emanuel rem- reminded me of this, and I, I think it's very true, but... Um, you see them a lot around uh, fast food places, mm. and they love the food that falls on the ground around a big dumpster, and they love French fries. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the, you know urbanization has provided them with additional food that they didn't have out in the wild. Yeah, that's and right. So I think that's one reason we're seeing them more in the urban area. Yeah, yeah. very good. All right, Charles. Well, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host, and we've got Madge Lindsay. We have her for just a few more minutes. If you have an a interesting question you'd like to ask, um, the number here is 800-552-8502. Uh, any topic on birds is, is okay. We've been even talking about lizards as prey for roadrunners, so you can bring up uh, any kind of topic. If we can somehow get it back to birds, it, it, it'll work for me. So, uh, okay, let's talk about communities. We talked a little bit about that with the, the birding festivals, Madge. So what, what else do communities need to do to attract bird watchers? Let's say they don't want to do a festival, uh, but what other kind of accommodations do, they, do bird watchers require um, to track those nature tourism dollars? Well, you know, things like um, adding, uh, we added the birding classic to kind of help um, come in uh, to, from different communities. But I would say the main thing that, that a community could do is to protect their natural areas as much as possible. 
I know that development takes place and people need jobs, and we all do. But I think if people will save more of their natural areas close to their towns, uh, I'm reminded, I, I just went to Ecuador this past year, and we were in a restaurant, and they had bird feeders outside of the restaurant so the people in the restaurant could see the hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was such a treat. I mean, we don't even do that here. But uh, if you've got a natural area and you've got lots of hummingbirds or lots of any kind of bird, you know, one, one event I heard about was Parks and Wildlife did on one of their wildlife management areas is that when the geese came in, you know, the geese in the winter are here in big flocks. There was a, a kind of a, a shallow place that the geese would land, but they would take people uh, out with um, with their waders on into the water and let the geese land all around them. <laughs> That's about the wildest thing I've ever heard about. That's cool. But uh, anyway, I think they're just about anything you could do. And I think the main thing is to if you've got a beautiful creek or uh, flowing water coming through your town or even just a, a waste treatment plant uh, the birds come after the uh, clean yeah. water that comes out of the uh, waste treatment mm-hmm. plant that can run into a lake because it's clean and the birds are just be all over it so you could have a good birding site in your town and if you get a rare bird you're going to have people from everywhere show mm-hmm. up yep so let's talk about landowners that might be interested in opening up their their property to uh, wildlife viewing tourists. Um, does the property need to be of, of a minimum minimum acreage to qualify? And what kind of infrastructure does that pro- private property need to have to attract bird watchers? Well, first of all, you'd have to be willing to open your um, your place up for people to come because you wouldn't want people hanging around your place if you hadn't invited them. <laughs> but uh, the the idea that uh, landowners can do this is is very much out there and and it's not that hard uh, the thing that i think that we we don't do enough is just think through what we've got and if we don't need to to uh plow it up and plant corn we could just maybe uh leave the habitat there and uh eventually you know you're going to have birds there and in and if you add water or make sure there's water close by um if you have a rare bird you can, uh, or something that most people don't ever get to see, like their yellow rails, uh, you could uh, also think about um, doing something like that. But you'd want to contact somebody, not necessarily Cliff, because he's got his hands full now as a retiree, but Mm -hmm. Parks and Wildlife has people that go out and look at your resources and help you figure out if you can do, uh, of course, hunting or, or nature tourism. And one thing comes to mind when I was in the Rio Grande Valley, this woman had a, a home and she had a rare owl, the Bruginous Pygmy Owl. And uh, she, uh, birders wanted to come to her place all the time. And she finally opened it up and built a few rooms and rented out rooms. And, uh, and that owl, I guess, is still bringing people in. But the thing is, the, what was so wonderful and it was one of the highlights of my life was her telling me the story about how the hurricane had come through and that the owl wrote, uh, was okay after the hurricane because it rode out the storm <clears throat> in her wood pile. Hmm. So, you know, there's just wonderful things to learn uh, if you've got rare birds around or just uh, 
a good excuse me a good selection of birds neat so if if somebody a landowner or community leader wants to investigate attracting nature tourists what kind of information on the web can you point these people to well uh, i would say start with the non-game program at texas parks and wildlife and uh but what if they're what if they're in a different in a different state we're we're in several states Excuse me, that's right. We've got Louisiana and probably Mississippi and, and Arkansas. And Arkansas, yeah, and yeah, exactly. So go to your state DNR. The state agencies, mm-hmm. all, most all of them now are working on non-game projects. Well, that means birds that are not just hunted and you know caught on a, a fishing line. And so uh, that would be a great place to start. Or the other resource is find your local birders, the really the people who know the birds. Yeah and have them do a survey of your place. You know, during migration would be a good time, or fall migration, or even in the winter, uh, and especially if they have water on their place, there's gonna be, and the habitat is still healthy, and the water's clean, you you know, they're gonna have birds. So Mm -hmm. I would say habitat is just always important, and having water. So we had a call. I don't think he's still on the line. Uh, I have a message here. It was Paul from Nacogdoches, and I'm going to read it. And I wish he was on the line to, to explain what he means. I, I think maybe I'll let you interpret what he means. But he, he asked, quote, what is Madge's most powerful experience watching birds? Maybe powerful means life-changing or the hair on the back of your neck rose. I, I don't know what he means by that, but I'll let you answer it. i got one in Ecuador. And then uh, I want to think about one here. Well, first of all, I was in Ecuador on a trip this past winter. It was in January. And we were out looking at high-altitude birds uh, right outside of Quito. And we went up to this uh, volcano, volcano, which was still an active volcano, but it wasn't uh, you know, carrying on while we were there. But we were halfway up and stopped to have lunch. And there, the homeowners will... Uh, find out birders are coming their way and they know there's no restaurants so they do lunch so we were at this place for lunch that belonged to these these farmers and it was really wonderful and they had put up hummingbird feeders Mm. well we were in the dining room they had windows all around we were looking at the birds and the feeder and all of a sudden i just about fainted there was the largest hummingbird i've ever seen Mm. and it was called the giant hummingbird i later learned and it's the biggest hummingbird in the world, and I and I'm a fan of hummingbirds. And here they're like uh, three or four inches long, or five, and that one was bigger than a robin. Hmm. So that was the life changing experience. Yeah, that's for me. a that's it was a, just amazing. That's a good answer. Yeah, and, and as far as going here, being here, I think the day we saw the violet crowned hummingbird in my yard, my my habitat is about 15 years old. I planted everything on the lot, and I wanted to have what you need for a good garden is to have different levels of vegetation, like trees, and then some bushes, and then some flowers down below. Mm-hmm. And you're usually going to get birds that would frequent all those layers. But here we're seeing the uh, violet crown hummingbird in my uh, golden ball lead tree, hmm. and and that was a real wonderful experience because that told me that what I had done could attract a rare hummingbird in. That's great. You've pointed your finger at several things here, and I wanted to recap that habitat is, is number one. And also, if you're new at this, 
and you want to learn more, find the local birders in your community. You know, that way they're geared towards what are what birds are in your area and, and you're not looking up stuff from 600 or 800 miles away. Um, so th those are really good. Um, I, I want to also finish up here just with one last question because we're running out of time and, and you've kind of you kind of mentioned a few things but I wanted to really put you on the spot in, in all the years of working with people what was the most surprising and or most gratifying outcome that came from you inspiring a landowner or, or a community well there have been some wonderful ones wonderful ones uh, one that comes to mind is when we were putting in the Great Texas Coastal Birding Trail. Uh, we had to go out to every community where we were going to list a site, and uh, the grant we got from uh, federal highway funds for highway enhancement, we put the birding trail in. And this was money just for enhancement, like uh, not, not the standard roadside parks and all of that. But anyway, we had to convince the county commissioners that it was worthwhile for us to do that in their county, and they had to sign on to this. So one day we took the mayor and some of the county commissioners out birding, and I will never forget, as long as I live, and, and it, like, it did bring goosebumps. One of the mayors took a pair, we gave him a pair of binoculars and said, look over there at that painted bunny. Mm. And he almost... He almost passed out. He couldn't believe how beautifully colored it was. That's great. And, and, and that was just so much fun to see that. And, the, you know, that's the way most people respond when they really get to see a bird. You don't have to, you know, you, most times you're going to have to have binoculars and know how to use them. But you can learn that by just getting with your birders. It's very easy. That's right. And, and you can learn it in your backyard. So I would say that that's one of my life-changing experiences. Awesome, and a good one. Madge, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us. I really appreciate it. I hope you had fun. Oh, I had a great time. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Madge. All right, bye-bye. So, bye-bye. We're going to end with a conservation tip, and this month we're going to talk about nuisance bird nests. Are you annoyed by the antics of a certain nesting bird at your home or office? Maybe it's a swallow with its mud nest under your porch and the adults keep swooping at you. Do you feel like calling the authorities to get rid of this nuisance nesting bird? Or maybe there's a nesting colony of herons and egrets at your private lake and you don't like the noise and the mess they make. No local, state, or federal agency will come catch and remove any native species of bird that's nesting on your property because it's a violation of the law. If you want to take matters in your own hands, you can, but you must proceed carefully, making sure you know state and federal laws. The swallows and herons mentioned earlier are state and federally protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. It is illegal for any person to destroy their nest or eggs without a permit. Active nests with eggs or chicks inside may not be touched or destroyed, so you have to let that nesting cycle finish. An inactive or empty nest does not require a permit to destroy. Investigate things that you can do in the non-nesting season to discourage these birds so they won't return next spring and summer. Those swallows are eating pesky insects around your home, so, so they're good neighbors to have around. Earlier I mentioned adult birds swooping at you near their nest. They're just being good protective parents. Remember that we have neighbors all around us, even the feathered kind, that need space and time to raise their family too. 
Give them that opportunity. It will be just for a short period of time. Do it for the birds. So this concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. And our phone-in guest was Madge Lindsay. Thanks for joining us, Madge. This show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of A Cliff Swallow was recorded by Eric Defonso and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the swallow on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on your website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Again, redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls, which will be our 100th episode next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, December 12th. And remember, do it for the birds.